it's not enough to be honest. You've got to be seen to be honest. I mean, it's a life-changing uh, moment, but it also sets you up to allow people to fuck up in the future. Managers are happy, customer service is better, they're earning more money, the wives are happier, the kids are better, you know, I don't know. And suddenly, I'm a hero. Ladies of the night above, uh, proper Peaky Blinder country. Did you have any belief at that point that you would be successful? And she said, oh, I know, uh, I know uh, where that is, the money is. Do you? She said, yes, she said, um, He's been giving it to his family, his first family. Welcome back to another episode of Success is a System. Uh, I'm really excited today. We're here with the legendary Jim McCarthy. Welcome, Jim. It's great to see you again. And just before we started filming, Jim and I worked out we'd known each other about 37 years. Makes me feel really old. But the common thing that we recognised when I very first um, met Jim and I went up to interview him at uh, in Birmingham at the head offices of what was Dylan Super Sig's one stop, it became, uh, was that we both started as paper boys. Both then moved to working into news agent type businesses. The difference is Jim has gone on to meteoric levels uh, of working as CEO of One Stop. The operating board of Sainsbury's and the chief executive officer at Pound Lounge. And so many more boards that we'll find out more as we go about. And Jim has always been, it's not just me saying it because Jim's here, seen as a real leader and inspiration in retail. So uh, you're in for a treat. Um, it's great to have you here, genuinely. And I remember when uh, I first came up to your offices in um, Brown Hills, wasn't it? That's yep. right. And uh, I was, I'd just been made chairman of the Association of Convenience Stores. Very excited about that because uh, it was an important uh, association for us both. And uh, we were chatting and uh, I think I'd allowed about half hour and you and I just ended up chatting for a couple of hours. It just went on for ages because I was so inspired by... The, where you were taking that business because that business had, had evolved from being like cheap fags or cigarettes uh, into so much more. And you, you tell us a bit about Jim before you uh, went into retail. What's your background? What, what got you into doing your job that you did and your journey up to that point, if you like, because part of what people get from success as a system is how do, where do people come from? Are they all silver spoon? Are, are, they, are they all got like an amazing education and inspirational mum and dad? And uh, certainly for me, that wasn't the case. So tell us a little bit about Jim before we met on that day. Okay, mate, Thank, thanks very much for the, for the intro and, um, and the build-up. Um, and I hope I can do, do it justice. Um, background, um, one of three sons, uh, three boys, Father was an um, ex-military man, a regimental sergeant major during the war. Uh, a little bit of competition between the three boys. Um, so and where do you sit in that? You... I, I was the middle. The middle, okay. So I used to get the hand-me-down clothes from my elder brother. And by the time I'd worn them, they, they had to be new for, you know, for my younger brother. So I was the one, if you like, that would claim to have been the hard-done-to lad. But um, when I was 12... Uh, Dad always used to give us pocket money for doing jobs. Yeah. yeah. So there was a risk-reward bit, you know. And uh, things that stick in my mind was when we when Dad had a pub, we had coal fires. Right. And he bought large chunks of coal because they were cheaper than the small. So oh. he had to break them up with hammers. And so the three boys, we would have, have fun breaking these big chunks of coal up with hammers. And then we'd put them in the buckets. And they were so heavy... 
you have to use centrifugal force <laughs> to get them from the coal shed, which is a big old pigsty type thing, to the back door so and to the fire. So yourself along sort of thing. We were sweet going around oh, like right. that, you see. So that we were sort of taught early on that if you, if you were going to earn money, you earned it. Yeah. You didn't get it for nothing. Um, and you valued it because he didn't give us a lot. Because yeah. he hadn't got a lot, you know. Um, but we used to like to please him. So I think one of my early recollections is to please my dad, I had to do well. And so, right. and so I tried to do better than my two brothers. Yeah, a little bit easier to do well on my little brother because he was three years younger than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but um, not not so perhaps not so uh, not so much for my elder brother. But anyway, so that was the that was the start. Then my mother was poorly, um, very working class uh, family. You know, dad had been on the Triumph um, assembly line. Right, he installed uh, steel staircases at power stations and things like that. So. No background of uh, of what I would call no silver spoon. No, no, no. I wouldn't have even know what that was. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, when I was twelve, we moved because Mum was poorly. She had uh, she had cancer. She's a miracle. Still, still alive. She's ninety six. Oh, right. um, but she had in her early forties cancer, and uh, happily, um, she was cured of that after two big operations and Fantastic. a load of radium. So. We had to move from the pub, which was a hard, hard life. People think it's wonderful life. Oh, it's early till late. Oh, it's hard work, really hard work. Uh, so we moved, and Dad was, um, by this time, when drink driving came in, he'd uh, lost some of the trade at the pub, because it was a country pub, yeah. and he'd taken up a position as a salesman with Scottish Newcastle Breweries. So when the pub went, he'd still got his job. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we, we went to live in Water Orton, um, and... Uh, <laughs> I decided to go to the local paper shop, which had just been taken over by a company called Dillon's, uh, and do a paper round. And I'd worked out that I was 12 years old. Uh, I'd worked out that um, if I took my little brother with me uh, on the paper round, I could send him. He was a quick runner. Oh, okay. He was faster than me. So I could do it twice as quick if I took him with me, but gave him like 20% of the, of the so money. cheap labour for you. <laughs> But he was quite bright because after not very long, <laughs> he decided he could do a paper round. And although that broke the law because you weren't allowed to do a paper yeah. round, at, you know, below the age of 13, I think. You know, I, I was your younger brother because at seven, I used to help my yeah. older brother do the paper Absolutely. round. Absolutely. And what a great training ground that is because yeah. it's hard work. You're going out in all weathers. You've <clears> got to get up really early. You've got to get back to have your breakfast, put your clothes on, get you to school. Because I used to travel to yeah. 30 odd miles to school Jeez. on the train and stuff, you know, and didn't get home until sort of six o'clock at night um, following school. So that was where I started to learn about um, reward, if you like, or earning yeah. uh, and delegation but I hadn't worked out that to say at that point that my brother was bright enough to realise that actually you know you do it on your own Jim uh, I'm going to have my own so that 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 was that so at 17 took my O levels uh, at 16 got those so I started to do A levels and made a big mistake I asked to do split I asked to do a, well there were three subjects I think plus general studies but two of those had split tutorials Right, and they gave me special dispensation to do that. Unfortunately, it didn't really work for me. I needed the tutorial, and I, did, you know, I was always catching up. Yeah. And so eventually, I had to make this decision: either really go for it, or leave and get a job. And some of my pals had left at sixteen and um, were doing; they were very happy. 
they were earning money yeah, yeah. I could see this and that was fantastic so I decided to leave and the plan Mike was to join the uh, training program of Marks and Spencer or British Home Stores as okay. it was in those days yeah, yeah. Uh, and Littlewoods those are the three and so I applied and um, Marks's which was the one I really wanted to go to um, said well you can you, you know you come and be interviewed by us but not until you're 18 that's when our yeah. trainee uh, program started. Yes. Yeah. So I thought, what do I do? Now, I'd started as a paper kid, but I'd been promoted to mark the papers up in the morning, so I'd get down to the shop at six o'clock, yeah. mark all the rounds up, put all the rounds up, you know, put the magazine. You've done this, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, you know, give me the right order for the streets. Absolutely. If somebody didn't come in, I had to go and do that round as well before I went home and all that sort of stuff. Um, but then I'd been promoted to work on Saturdays, uh, and I used to get 10 bob, exactly 50p. Uh, and then I've got Sunday as well, you know, and a Sunday round. And if you look very carefully, I've got Sunday boy shoulder because they were really <laughs> heavy. Yeah. yeah. So one one shoulder is slightly lower than the other, you see. But anyway, that's the background. So I asked the area manager, a chap called Big, well, his, his name was Ken Kitchener, and he was a huge man. Um, very, very happy chap. He was a lovely bloke. Um, but he must have been 22, 23 stone. Oh, right. And we used to know him. There was a, a, a nice lolly at the time called Big K. So he was always known as Big K. And I said to him the one day, Mr. Kitchener, was, you know, I've been brought up to be fairly respectful. Mr. Kitchener, is there any chance of a job, you know, on your trainee programme? Now, I wasn't going to tell him the full story because I was going to leave at 18 and go to right. Marx's. But uh, he said, oh, Jim, yes. Uh, funnily enough, we've started a trainee programme. Um, anyway, I, I'd been working on this programme for six weeks before I was interviewed. Oh, and then I was interviewed by a chap called Alex Stewart, who was the former chief superintendent of the Birmingham Fraud Squad. And he interviewed me, and he was so perceptive because he knew my father would be worried about me. So after the interview, he rang my father and said, he was Scottish, um, Alex was, he said, uh, Mr McCarthy, uh, I won't attempt the Scottish accent, but he said, Mr McCarthy, you'll be worried about your son, James. He said, well, I've interviewed him this morning. And he's done very well. He's interviewed well. Um, and I'm going to keep an eye on him. So don't you worry too Fantastic. much. And that really settled my dad down, which made it a little bit easier for me. But, but isn't it interesting, just on that point, how whole communities looked out for each other? Uh, you know, to think today that someone's job or someone in someone's job would ring a parent, the kid would be furious, oh, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the parent would think, what are you ringing about? You know, it's yeah. like... But, how wonderful, wonderful. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and he was one of those guys in my life, uh, Mr. Stewart, Alex Stewart, uh, I always call him Mr. Stewart, um, that had a, a profound impact. He was blade straight. He was very conscientious. Being an ex-fraud squad officer, he was very patient. And that's not like me, I'm not patient, but he was. And he would pour over things for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then he'd give them to me and say, right, go and do this. And it worked. Yeah, yeah. So I learned a huge amount from him. And he said things like, um, never be alone in a storeroom if there's cash there. In case. Something goes wrong. Something, something goes, goes wrong. Missing, something, yeah, exactly. He said, and he, he used to say, it's, no, it's not enough to be honest. You've got to be seen to be honest. And so there were little gems like that that I used to pick up from him. And I would apply. And I... To be, to be honest, I was pretty much in awe of him, you know, uh, huge respect. Uh, and sadly, he smoked a lot of uh, Henry Winterman cigars oh, and, right. and he had a heart attack and um, passed away 
too young. I think he was probably about 59, something like that. Anyway, so I then met Rosie. So I, I Your wife? It. Yes. Well, I was only 18 by this time, of course. And I'd been running shops and things doing, and I'd worked out when you went into a shop. The, the reason that I used to be sent to problem shops, so, um, bad stock losses and low turnover and, you know, bad, bad shops. And <laughs> the thread was always, it was because they weren't being run properly. People weren't sticking to the rules. They were opening late. Yeah, they weren't yeah. doing cash checks. They weren't doing a proper stock and order checks, you know, and this sort of stuff, and, and keeping the assortment fresh, keeping the, the shops clean, yeah. and motivating the staff and, you know, engaging with the customers and try, trying to get to know the customers' names and things, you know. So when we did that, turnover, we used to go yeah. to the roof. Yeah. And so I looked like a hero in all those. So anyway, I was sent to a shop called... Uh, uh, Alcester shop, shop 33, out towards Stratford-on-Avon, and that's where I met Rosie, my wife. And she was one of the shop assistants there, and her, her manageress was a Mrs. Heal, who was an amazing woman. Mrs. Heal used to be, she had about five or six kiddies, I think, and she would she would work, I mean, I wouldn't recommend this, but she'd work until the day <clears throat> before the birth. All right. And then the day after, she'd be like back in the shop. Unbelievable woman. But she really helped i think develop rosie and rosie showed me a lot about merchandising and things so i learned quite a lot yeah, yeah. and i was lucky because she was a very pretty girl and eventually she said yes she would go out with me so <laughs> eventually that's where your it, persistence comes in is it, it, well it? yeah i mean she did turn me down about six times and i was getting to the point where i thought well, i've no no chance here and i was hitting above my weight you know uh, big guys i am <laughs> anyway we're married Rosie was 18 years and five days, and I was 18 years and nine months. Right. And we got nothing. So, apart from ourselves, so we had everything. Yeah, exactly. You know? And we were in love. So, the only, the only place I could get to live, and I'm not sure whether you'll know this place, but was in Small Heath, Birmingham. I've heard of it. Which is up the road from the Birmingham City Football Ground. And at that point, this is 74... 1974, it was incredibly deprived. Is that Peaky Blinders country? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And just around the corner, about 150 yards from where I was living with Rosie, there was a a, a, a nightclub type thing. And there'd been two bouncers shot dead on the tour and you know, separate incidents. And I was, it was, and our rooms in there, we had padlocks on every room. Yeah. yeah. The bathroom had no sink or toilet. So it was a shared toilet upstairs. So you had to go out upstairs to go to the toilet. Our bedroom had a padlock on it, because if you didn't, anything you had would be, would be stolen. Yeah. And uh, my dad gave me, and I always remember this, Mike, but my dad gave me um, uh, an Indesit refrigerator uh, for nothing, which is unlike him. But he did give me this refrigerator. The only place we could put it, because it was about six foot tall in those days, remember the yeah, yeah. tall ones, was in the bedroom. And so I always used to joke that if we wanted a particularly romantic night, we'd leave the door open just a little bit on the refrigerator <laughs> and the light would just like, gently like walk across the room. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so quite rough. And, and I think Rosie was remarkable because to put up with that sort of... She wasn't used to that, and neither was I really. But 18 months of that, and we had two... Um, if I said ladies of the night okay. on, the on the top floor, interesting combination... Um, mother and daughter and uh, we used to get cues in the hall and stuff you know 
Uh, and on the first floor, <coughs> we had a chap, uh, he's probably still around actually, he was a huge man, uh, a chap called Bob Chesterman. And he must have been, in those days, he would have been perhaps 45-ish. And he was about six foot eight. Uh, and a probably 22 stone yeah, of yeah. Canadian ice hockey player. And if the customers for the top floor were lucky, they made a mistake and they rang my bell at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I'd get up and say, no, you want that bell there? You yeah. know? If they got his... Oh, if they got his bell. Oh, you could hear this. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was quite an interesting place well i i, I love to interject as well because i want to capture some thoughts because um our backgrounds are are even the more the more you say the more i realize they're more similar than than i even realized even knew i knew they were similar but i used to say to my mum as a teenager mum one day i'm going to be a million i'm going to buy you a house kind of thing and and uh, even even back then but so let's just go back you know you're now I don't get into money too much, but nine-figure nine wealth. But back then, you're living in a room with locked locked uh, doors so that the, in the house other people don't steal it. Ladies of the night above, uh, proper Absolutely. peaky blinder country. Did you have any belief at that point that you would be successful and then progress uh, to anything like uh, what, what you've achieved? No, in truth. I mean, I would love to be able to say I had a plan. I didn't. I just wanted to do the best I possibly could. And I certainly wanted to get away from Small Heath yeah. and make our lives better. Now, because we were running news agents um, at the time, which are very long hours, you know, yeah, yeah. like 80 hours Every day. Yeah. And I would do the 80 hours, you know. It wasn't a case of you know, having time off, because you did. I, you know, I wanted to do well. Um, but you didn't get chance to spend your... Money. So, so, so you went into a property so, or... Well, it used to go into a coffee pot. Right. Because half the half my income was rent. Yeah. And I had money, you know, one of those um, meters to put... Yeah, electric. You know, two bob bits in. Um, and, and Rosie, bless her, she'd, she'd gone to work at Boots in Birmingham. Um, so there was a second income coming in. And what happened was, um, which was really a, the first step change, <clears throat> was when Alex Stewart, the guy, you know, the ex-policeman, um, said to me, we've got a shop in Kingsbury Road, Erdington, that keeps getting burgled. The manager's bought a house down the road from there. The flat's empty. Would oh. you like it rent-free? <laughs> you can be our alarm system, you see. And I said, rent-free, Mr Stewart? Yes, please, I'll have it. <laughs> so that enabled me to, to sort of save seven or eight pounds a week Fantastic. in rent. And so at the end of a year maybe just above that, I'd got enough to put down on, my, on our first house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and meanwhile, I'd been given a shop to run permanently, which was the first convenience store. It was a sort of quasi-convenience store on Chelmsley Wood, which was a very large council estate. And I'd picked that shop to, because it was going to be a tough one, and I thought I could show a what I could increase do. Or, yeah, yeah, and I could show what I could do there. Um, but it was grocery, Right. You know, which so new, wasn't new categories, new yeah. lessons, new learning. But not longer hours. The same hours as a news agent. Uh, no off-license in it. No um, wines and spirits or anything like that. But grocery and a deli counter and all that. So I learned lots of new things. And that was when I really started, was able, because it was permanent, to build a team. And I had a lovely team of ladies there. Really, really good, committed people. Salt of the earth. I mean, and they would tell, and, you know, we had a great relationship because they'd tell me what, 
they thought I should do and how I should do it if I was doing it, you know, incorrectly and so on and so forth. And I, and I ran that and we were so successful that I think we were the first shop to do double-digit net profit at branch level. Right. So the branch contribution was double-digit, first one. Which the groceries helped with, I guess, as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. Because the tobacco always pulled it down. Absolutely. But yes, well, yes. I mean, full full margin in those days was about 10%. Yeah. Uh, Super SIGs, which was a bit later, wasn't it? 3%. I mean, imagine that, but the cash flow. Oh, anyway. So did that for seven or eight months, got three stock results, all surpluses, which were great. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be able to do that, actually, but yeah. I managed to do that. And uh, so I was then asked at 19 to be, uh, whether I would like to be an area manager. Brilliant. And I got a, an advance phone call from Mr. Stewart, which I probably shouldn't have, saying, look, if Mr. Magson, the deputy MD, rings you up, put your best suit on. And that's all he would tell me. So anyway, Mr. Magson did ring me up. I went to the office. It was for an area manager role 26 shops in Birmingham Brilliant. at 19 years old which again I, I suppose because a, a few weeks ago on my podcast we did Dave Potts who's CEO oh the Tesco Morris. man yeah, yeah. of course yeah. Uh, and similarly he left Tesco. school with five F's at O level and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and he's a great uh, CEO today but uh, he, he would also talk about uh, at 19 he'd, he was running one of Tesco's stores a small yeah. store but one of their stores and uh, and he said, the benefit, people often talk about university, but they're just starting university, and I'd already had three years' experience kind yeah. of thing. So that work experience is a university of life. It doesn't all have to be about going to university, does it? No, no, no. I mean, Because I think a lot of kids today think they've got to go to university to be successful. I think it's harder today. I do, because I think the, the playing, to, to have a level playing field, you're encouraged to stay on an education for all sorts of reasons, both practical and political, I think. Um, but in those days, it, you know, the, the number of university um, applicants... Places, was, no. Yeah. And there were grants and all sorts of stuff that you could, you could latch on to. Um, but you were, if you were lucky... I mean, Mike, you know, when, you, when you're doing a job, you need an element of hard work. You definitely need honesty... You definitely need a good boss, yeah. Um, at least for several parts of your career. Uh, and when I say a good boss, somebody that will help you, will train you. Tough love, but also there yes. to support you. Oh, I mean, I've been called all sorts by bosses, but you know, for the right reasons. Yeah. And, um, and, but bosses that, when you've done something really well, they don't take the glory. Yeah. They, yeah. they make sure that those above them know that one of their guys, Jim or Mike or whatever, you know, or one of their girls, one of their team, has produced something that's worthy of note. Which is a sign of true leadership because, yes. of course, they still get the recognition anyway. Abs- absolutely. But they, they don't steal it from someone in the Exactly. Team. Yeah. So you need that. Hope you're enjoying Success is a System. Every Tuesday, we launch it on all podcast platforms and on YouTube. Drop us a note and tell us who you would like to see or hear on Success is a System or what subjects you'd like us to cover to help you and your business. Success is a System, like, subscribe, and make sure you get it every Tuesday for great lessons and systems that have made people wealthy, healthy, and successful. You need a little bit of luck. You know, I remember being burgled um, at one of the shops. It was Garrett's Green in Birmingham. And um, I got no transport. So when I was banking, I had to use the bus. Jeez. And every night I used to have to go up on the bus with a, with a night safe wallet. Uh, some of us can remember the night safe wallets now. In Birmingham? 
Yeah. And I'd have to deposit it. Now, this particular day, I'd worked, I don't know, 12, 14 hours or whatever it was. And I was tired. And I wanted to get home and have my dinner and stuff. So I wouldn't have got home till perhaps half seven, eight o'clock. And, uh, and I thought, well, well, shall I put this, you know, shall I put the night safe wallet in overnight? And it was the only time I didn't, Mike. And Rosie said to me, when I spoke to Rosie, I said, I'm, I'm going to leave the night safe tonight. And she said, oh, 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 really? And I said, yeah. She said, oh, you shouldn't do that. I said, well, I'm going to. I said, you know. It's... She said, well, hide it. I said, really? Where, where hide it? Where? She'll put it in the fridge, in the ice cream fridge. I said, well, I don't think I can do that. She said, well, put it under the fitting then, where the, where the newspapers and the magazines are, the, the plinth yeah, lift, yeah, lifted up. And you could put it on there and put the plinth back. So I did. And never thought any more of it until I got there at six o'clock the following morning. And uh, I opened the, the, the front door and I pulled the newspaper bundles and things in. And I looked at the cigarette gantry. You know, the, there wasn't anything on it. All it, the cigarettes had gone. been robbed, yeah. And then I looked at the side door and that was open. And there were thousands of packets of crisps all over this passageway. And a massive hole in the tobacco storeroom. I thought, oh, God. Then I looked at the, the alarm box, and the alarm box, had been, it was only a cupboard door key, had been opened, and it had all been switched off. Oh, no. Because the next thing I'm thinking is... The cash. The cash. If the cash is gone, I'm gone. You know, because that's me finished. Yeah. Because I've broken the rules. You know, this is, this is the end of me. I'm 19, you know. <laughs> well, just before I was promoted this. So, anyway, God, it's the longest 10 yards <laughs> in my life. I got that and I lifted this and it was there oh jeez so anyway I ran so that's the luck oh this, and I'm coming on to the good boss <laughs> so my my sales assistant was an elderly lady called Mrs Moody and I rang her up because this is like six o'clock in the morning and I said we've been burgled you know I've got this night safe wallet and I've got to get up to the bank and put it in you know and she, she said well uh, Joe was her husband Joe Moody and he was probably well, he seemed very old in those days. He was probably yeah. 60. You know? Anyway, she sent him up and he took it up to the night safe and put it in the night safe. I rang the area manager and the security department. The area manager, this is where you need a good boss. The area manager was a chap called William Little, Bill Little. And he was a fairly darkish complexion. I always remember, a very handsome man. And he came in and he said, well, what's happened? And I said, well, I've been burgled, you know. I, I didn't put the night safe she, he said oh yes she did he said well, no he said, he said where is it I said well, it's up in the night safe now I said but that was done this morning he said no it wasn't I said it was Mr Little he said no it wasn't Jim it wasn't I said Mr Little it was honestly I sent Joe Moody up with it he said Jim I'm telling you you did that last night I said oh uh, oh right okay Mr Little so he said let's have a, just, just check all the cash and everything yeah. he said um, oh he said uh, you didn't bank so and so no he said, well, where's that then? I said, well, that was in the tobacco um, store. That was the day before stakes. So it was the one before. Yeah. yeah. So he said, uh, hmm. He said, but that was all locked up. Oh, yes. He said, and where were the floats for the tills? Because I had two tills. I said, well, they should have been in the tobacco storeroom. I said, but they were in the tills. He said, no, they weren't. <laughs> I said, they were. He said, I said, they were. He said, no, 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 the company rules say they were in the tobacco storeroom. So that's, where, well, so that's where they were. I said, oh, do you get it, Jim? I said, yes. Now, he had the chance at that point to make a bit of a name for himself. I checked and Jim had got it wrong. He's a bad one. Yes, and I'd have gone, you know. 
He chose not to. And because of that, that one thing, really, I was able then, subsequently, through lots of other interactions and stuff, but to end up as MD there. So you need a good boss. But but also on that, that is a really, I mean, it's a life-changing moment, but it also sets you up to allow people to fuck up in the future. Yes. And and I think it's really important because I'm sure you then came across people throughout the time well, you forgive, that had yeah. made a mistake a genuine mistake and, yes. and they think this is the end well that's absolutely but you right. can give them the help that he, yeah. the hand up that he gave you so. I, I think that's right Mike I think the other thing is you, you suddenly realise why the rules are in place and you think actually never compromise those yeah. just do it you know if if you have to to get somewhere faster then do it knowingly and know yeah. what the risks are you know and I used to do a bit of that as well um, so in but, that one incident, there's there's four or five oh, solid lifetime lessons. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So you know, lucky Jim, oh, know, okay. which is a sort of phrase I've I've used throughout the life. But that so anyway, I then went to do this 26 um, shops in Birmingham, and I took over from a from a guy who who actually went into group training, and there's me 19. I looked a bit older because I was married and I was a bit I'm. I'm the marriage and whatnot had matured me a little bit faster than perhaps most. But I got managers in their 50s and their 60s, and we were the, pretty much the bottom area, you know, in terms of sales performance and profitability and so on and so forth. And I had a really good look at it. And I've got a bit of an advantage because I knew how the offices worked, because I'd done some of my trainee work there at the, at the centre. Yeah, yeah. And um, I realised that they were all counter-service now, this was, you know, th- this sounds like ludicrous now, but they were all counter service and, and everything was pretty much nailed down. So all the confection were behind glass returns. So you can pinch it, but you couldn't really buy it either. So, yeah. you know, we, were, we weren't exposing it to the risk of sale. Yeah. <laughs> so but that still happens today yeah, in some I'm areas. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I said to the guys, look, I said, we haven't got any capital. We can't refit the stores with nice new um, fittings and stuff. And they were, they were self-employed managers. They, they got seven pence in the pound commission. So they, were, they wanted to sell more, but yeah. we didn't really make it easy for them. Um, but anyway, so I said, I said, you know what? I said, in our team, 26 managers, said, we've got carpenters, we've got electricians, we've got plumbers, we've got all sorts of people, builders, you know, they've all got a bit of this. I said, how would it be if we use some of the petty cash? Because I could get away with that because I've got a limit on that to buy, you know, some wood and some, you know, screws and, you know, returns and things, all sorts. I said, but if we do that, you know, we do it on a Sunday afternoon when the shop's shut at one, I said, we'll put a team in and we'll, we'll, get, we'll do it one by one. So if you come and help, we'll get to your shop eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that will put money on you. Well, oh. So, so much going, you know, in there oh. in terms of systems for success. We got teamwork, we yeah. got paying it forward, we got, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Um, recognising you've got to go above and beyond doing it on a Sunday and I mean, so much now that people say I'm not doing that oh. my, my shift finishes it. I've got yeah. managers Mike coming to me saying when, when's my shop going to be done yeah. when's my shop going to be done yeah. I said well, keep, you know, we will get to you but you've got to come and help us you know, duh, duh, duh. and of course the sales went through the roof and the profitability went through the roof and the managers are, and what, they're earning more money managers are happy the customer service is better they're earning more money the wives are happier the kids are better you know, and suddenly I'm a hero 
And this is all being, well, we're all heroes, really, but I'm the figurehead. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've enabled, You've enabled it. Yeah, exactly, I've enabled it. Yeah. And uh, so we go from bottom to top. And this is in 18 months. So I then get asked if I'd like to be regional manager, one of two. So, yes, please, sir. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, yes, please, sir. And so I had uh, six area managers and 120 stores. Now, that was a bit more challenging, a bit more difficult. But I could only be first or second. Yeah. And I was first. <laughs> so that was great, too. And I got some good lads. I mean... Along this journey, I have had to make some changes to pe- personnel. Because yeah. if, they, if they're not with you, they're again you, aren't they? And, um, and you, need to get, you need to get rid of some people. So there were, I remember there was one, I can say this because it actually went to court, but there was one um, a chap called LJ Bailey, Leslie James Bailey. And he'd had a huge stock loss. And this was, this, this was when I was an area manager. Yeah, yeah. And, I went, and I went to see him and... Uh, and I said, you know, it's 3,000 quid gone in 15 weeks. And this that was huge, a lot of money then. Oh, well, huge money. That, huge money. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, let's do a cash check. So we did the cash check. So where's, uh, oh, uh, uh, oh, I borrowed that. I'm going to put that back in it. So, so I said, where's your wife? Said, oh, she's upstairs in accommodation. I said, I'm just going to go up and have a chat with her. So anyway, I go, I said, you know, about the stock loss. And she said, and it was his second wife. And she said, oh, I know, uh, I know uh, where that is, the money is. Uh, do you? <laughs> she said, yes. She said, um, he's been giving it to his family, his first family. I thought, make you say that? So she told me. And I, well, you could knock me over because normally husband and wife, are, you know, they're, they're not right, just support yeah. each other. They'll say nothing, you know. But um, <laughs> so I went back downstairs and I said to him, Mrs. Bailey has explained to me what's been going on here. Do you want to tell me now? He said, oh, go on then. And this bloke was about 63, 64, something like that. Anyway, I, I, I had to... You did the wrong thing, but for good reasons. Uh, well, yeah, but I dismissed him and, um, and I phoned the police. Got the relief manager across, changed the locks and stuff. He went upstairs, got the, got the police. And I remember the police said they would... Because we got all the evidence and everything, you see and um, the shortage and all that yeah. business. And he admitted to me and she told me. So we got everything in place. And that was, I think, on a Monday or a Tuesday. And by the Friday, the police hadn't called. And I started getting a bit itchy about this. You know, I thought, oh. So anyway, I rang up the um, DS and I said, you know, you told me that you were going to go and pick him up and, you know, interview him yeah. and, and subject to what you found to charge him. And he said, oh, we're going to do that Sunday. And I said, well, why Sunday? And he said... You learn, don't you, in life? He said, well, because most solicitors will be on the golf course <laughs> on their boats. <laughs> so he said, no, all right. Now, this is backfiring off. It's not going to hurt anybody, you know, but dear, oh, dear. So, uh, so you learn again. Yeah. You learn again. So regional manager did that. And then the sales director of the company of Dillon's, Jack Hill, who was a lovely chap, um, was promoted to a subsidiary which left a gap. And I thought, you know, now top region, and still wet behind the ears, really, Mike, and learning all the time, within the confine of a quite a narrow industry at that point, news agents, yeah. And, uh, but I'm thinking, well, by this time I was about 
24, 25, something like that. And uh, I said to the chairman, Jeffrey Batman, B-A-T-T-M-A-N, Jeffrey Batman, um, I was going to apply for it. And he said, well, I wouldn't do that. I said, why, why is that, Mr Batman? He said, well, you won't get it. He said, we want somebody from outside with different experience and different skills and so on and so forth. I said, oh. I said, well, is it going to be advertised? Oh, it's going to be in the Sunday Times uh, this coming Sunday. I said, oh, right. I said, well, um, thank you very much. So anyway, I went and bought the Sunday Times, and it was I think it was PA Associates was the search company. Yeah. And um, I thought, I'm going to apply for this. So, uh, I mean, I probably shouldn't have, but I did. And they were very good because they interviewed me, PA did. And I went down to London for the interview, and I've never, I've never really had a proper interview. But best whistle and flute, and I remember what my dad said, you know, shiny shoes, make sure your hair's right, and you know, all the rest of it. Good knot, your time. And I went through the process, and I didn't hear anything for eight weeks. And I realised that I wasn't going to get it, you know, because I hadn't heard anything for eight weeks. And I thought, I know what's happening here. I don't, I don't feature. They're not going to tell me until they've appointed. Yeah. And that's what happened. So the, the chairman called me in, and he said, uh, you haven't got it. I said, well, I realise that, Mr. Batman. I'm very disappointed. I said, but, you know, I would have done you a good job as sales director. And he said, well, we've got, uh, we've got a chap that was head of Benelux for Dixon's. And he had introduced audio into Dixon's uh, and had made a big success of it. And he was joining us as sales director. And it was intended that when the MD retired... He would have, you know, if he'd done a good job, he would be the natural successor. So I think, yeah. in a way, they were saying to me, hold on a bit. <clears throat> it, yeah. There may be something for you going on. They never said that, but that's what I think may have been. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he, he cobbled it. Um, he didn't do a particularly good job at all. But meanwhile, and you'll remember this, Mike, they bought a group of shops on the south coast called Argus, A-R-G-U-S, as in the um, Peacock. Uh, from Westminster Press. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 47 shops, I think there were. Much smaller than I was used to, but this was going to be the assistant general manager role. So broad, much broader, including buying and all sorts, HR, the lot, everything. So he said, do you fancy that? And I didn't get on with this new sales director. Um, he wasn't, um, it wasn't my cup of tea, let's say that. Um, probably enough to say. Um, and uh, I said, oh, yes, I'd love to go. I said, well, you haven't seen, you know, no, no. I said, am I reporting? So you wanted a new challenge, change your geography, get away from that guy. Yeah, and uh, I would be reporting into the MD of the group. Yeah, yeah. John Hayward, who was a marvellous, marvellous man. So, um, Rosie, bless her, no question. Yeah, of course, we'll go. So we lived above a shop in Ham Road, Worthing, on a temporary basis. until The home of convenience, really. Yeah. Bob's Bearing and Bob's Bearing, well, I'm going to... Talk about that. So we, we, we got down there. We lived there, rent-free, which is great. Sold the house up in... By then, I'd moved to this one in Erdington um, and uh, sold that. But, of course, the houses in the south were three times the price of the ones yeah. in there. Mm. So I had to borrow a lot of money off the company on very low interest on the basis if I left the business, I had to pay it, repay it in full. But they were very kind to me, very low interest. So I was able to buy what I would call a wigwam. You know, it was a very tall roof like that, two bedrooms upstairs, nothing grand. It was, you know, actually not very grand at all, but it, we, we loved it. Yeah. Wow. And we did the same thing there. 
we, we basically went to town on the security, on the sales, on everything. And we refurbed the shops and, and we tripled the profit wow. in two years. Wow. And the general manager, a chap called Bevan, who was approaching retirement, um, we asked him to retire early because he was a bit of a stopper. You know, he, he, as soon as he went, everything accelerated. So it was brilliant. Um, and uh, I think he was probably happier as well, you know, as a result. But it gave me and my team, and I didn't have to make many changes there. I mean, there were some great people there. One I remember in particular, David McKenzie, who had been the chief cashier of Beaverbrook Newspapers. And he'd, he'd ended up as an area manager there um, as a result of a robbery at Express where he got a sawn-off shotgun put oh, into his yeah, mouth. Yeah. And uh, he went and ran a, um, a news agent then. And eventually that joined Argus. And thank God, because he was brilliant. Wonderful right. man. Wonderful man. So we had a great team, did really well. And as a result of doing well there, I was invited back to be Group MD. Okay, good. But whilst I was there, and this is the convenience bit, a chap called Ralph Cousins, who was a Sunday news wholesaler, said to me, you know what, Jim? You've got to, you've got to start doing convenience. And I said, in my naivety, oh, no, far too hard. We're all up extra hours. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, we're making loads of money. And, you know, he said, well, the future's convenient. And he kept, every time I saw him... He'd tell you that. He'd tell me that. And eventually I said to him, Ralph... I said, look, why don't we have a couple of days out, you and I? Um, would you show me some of these things that you're telling me about? And it, there was one... Because convenience store was a was not even a term back then, no. was it? It was sort of born out of a combination, I always think, of uh, of Bob Sperring and John Irish, uh, yes. who had been to the yeah, States yeah. and had bought this kind of theme. Absolutely. And One Stop, which was part yeah, of Portsmouth yeah, and Sunderland. Yeah. But Bob Sperring was really the man, wasn't yeah, he? That, yeah. um, well, the two brothers. He immediately were. opened long hours. Well, and, yeah, yeah. Didn't make much money trading. Did when he sold the business. Yeah, but didn't make yeah. much money, but they were fabulous shops. Yeah, they yeah. looked. Beautiful. Opened 180 when Circle oh, K bought him. Circle K, yeah, my goodness. Anyway, <laughs> so so I went out and had a couple of days with Ralph going around these convenience stores, and I was amazed because at six o'clock in the morning when the news wholesaler had delivered, there was piles of newspapers. So you knew... It was doing well. You could just look at a store with piles of newspapers outside. Because that's traffic. Yes. You can read the traffic. Absolutely. So the first one that became available was a one in St James's Road, Chichester. And um, it was about 2,000 square feet, might have been 1,800, a very old-fashioned grocery shop with newspapers, with newspapers. But it had a licence, and it, and it did. I remember it did 20 dozen filled baps every morning for the nice. industrial estate. And the man that owned it was a chap called Aylwood, Mr Aylwood, who was a philatelist, stamp collector. And he used to get around the, um, the <laughs> currency restrictions. <laughs> oh, he'd be long, long. Yeah, yeah. Um, by, by putting, like, a stamp, you know, <laughs> pinning a stamp out. When do you, remember, do you remember when you were only allowed to take 50 quid out of, out yeah, out of the country yeah, yeah. on foreign currency? And this is like global trading, you know, fantastic. Anyway, Mr. Aylwood, bless him, sold us this business. And I got hold of Booker to do all of the yeah, yeah. planograms and everything. I got hold of um, a chap called Richard Westwood, I think his name was, who was the shop fitter, Wedderburn, Wedderburn shop fitters, who yeah, used to yeah. do one stop and all yeah, that. Yeah. 
and we, we refitted it out. And it went from 5,000 a week, which was a really good take per week, to 20 the week after we'd finished. Amazing. So it was doing a million a year. Which it, at that time was oh, unheard of. Oh, yeah, yeah. It made over £200,000 on its own, net. Brilliant. Net. And I thought, what? And this is uh, 30 years ago? No, more. 30, more. 40 uh, years ago. Yeah, this would have been 80... It was around about the Falklands time. So 82 was Falklands. About 83, 84. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, wow, this this is Incredible. fantastic. And yes, it's longer hours. And yes, they're a bit more um, difficult. Bit but more one of the things, when I was selling uh, Spa till 8... Uh, sorry, Spa 8 till late to a lot of independent grocers would be saying, yeah, but the costs don't go up proportionally because yeah. you've got your rent already, whether you open two hours or 20 hours. You've exactly. got your electric running the fridges, whether you open two hours or 20 hours. Yes. Kind of and so suddenly when you open longer hours, your proportional margin per hour was yeah. much higher. Absolutely. Yeah. And people would pay for convenience. Yeah. And really, you, we, what we were doing was professionalising the corner shop. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. what we were doing. Evolving it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So bigger premises in the corner shop, wider assortment, Better standards, better hygiene, all those sort of things. Consistent you know? disciplines. Absolutely. And you'd be in stock and you got news and stuff and, and things. So, yeah, and this is before the, the loss of the Sunday newspapers and, you know, the monopoly and, and lottery and all this sort of stuff. Was, you know, Brilliant. all really important yeah. stuff. So, we went from zero to seven, a bit like to 62 in a right, yeah. sports car, like that. And the seven made more than the 45 or 47 stores in total. Right. So, that was the start and that's hard to ignore. You've got to then think, Absolutely. we need to bring that across the network. So God bless Ralph Cousins and his perseverance in telling me, despite me saying, no, 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 and kept on at me about convenience. And when I realised, when we did that first one, then we bang, you know, yeah. go fast. So they always say, don't they, if you're going to fail, fail fast. It's cheaper. But if you, if it's a winner, get going yeah. and get doing it, you know, and and dominate before anybody else can. Well, and that still amazes me today that there are so many businesses around the UK that have, so let's call that your model, uh-huh. that have a model that works. They might be a butcher's, they might be a, a, a restaurant, but they, if you had a model that you knew worked, you'd replicate it, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Or you should, because then it works here and here. And it Absolutely. doesn't work everywhere, but most places. And yet so many businesses are uh, are living lives of quiet desperation without realising they could multiply that model yeah. with good people, good infrastructure, good systems. Yes. But they could then become... Because it become business scale. Because everyone forgets, Tesco's was a delicatessen. Sainsbury's was a delicatessen. Absolutely. Operating out of a tiny store... Absolutely. They're on a journey that's different today, but it was the scaling and the multiplying and the disciplines that took them to where they existed. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Success as a a System. Watch out for the second part with Jim McCarthy next week. Here's a sneak preview of what's to come in next week's episode. One one of the sayings I use a lot now is, everyone in your business is either an anchor or a propeller. Yes. And... Sometimes you can be an anchor one day and a propeller the next, but if yeah. you're an anchor too often, you hold the business back. And I'd been working really hard, and rather selfishly, I suppose, uh, in lots of ways, and not putting as much into the family as yeah. you would. She said, I think you've got to know. I think they're thieving from you. I said, who's thieving from you? Some of the people, some of the operatives in the warehouse. Really? Yes, and it's idols. So-and-so, 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 so-and-so. 
And if you check the cameras, you'll see it. How long's that been going on? Well, it's been going on for a few months and I don't like it.